0: Okay, welcome aboard to a rather uncharacteristic episode of The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And uh, we were just opening up with uh, a brief excerpt of the music from a production called Barefaced by the Elu Dance Company in Cleveland, Ohio, which is inspired by uh, the novel Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. <coughs> Which, again, uncharacteristically, is what I'm going to be discussing tonight. Apparently, Barefaced was uh, (sighs) Lewis's first name for the novel, but he ultimately had to change it because there had been a Western release that year. 1957 of that title. So he changed it, I think, fortunately, to the far more evocative title, Till We Have Faces. Okay, and... uh, Uh, Why is, uh, you know, your usually uh, politically obsessed anarchist ranter going to be talking about a fantasy novel by C.S. Lewis tonight? Well, that's a good question. Uh, And it's a particularly good question because I don't habitually read fiction at all. I devour vast quantities of nonfiction, particularly history, but I only read maybe one or two novels a year. I'm extremely picky and selective in my uh, taste in fiction. Uh, however, I will confess that there are um, a couple of a handful of uh, of novels that I basically read in my youth, and I have been going back to throughout my entire life and rereading every few years, rather, rather obsessively. And it kind of feels like a guilty indulgence every time I do it. And almost all of them, I confess, are by dead Englishmen. And uh, C. S. Lewis is one of my guilty pleasures. I believe it was about two years ago that I actually did a podcast about one of his um, expository works, The Abolition of Man. But here, I'm actually going to be talking about one of his works of fiction. And um, the reason I have so much to say about it is uh, that, well, for starters, it's by far the best thing he ever wrote, at least the best fiction that he ever wrote. I mean, you know, he's got his, his fiction, his expository stuff, Christian apologetics, and then he's got his... You know, his real scholarly stuff about Renaissance and medieval literature, which I've just barely, you know, uh, put my toe into because it, it pretty much goes over my head. But of his fiction, uh, it's by far his best and also, not coincidentally, his least known and his least popular. Because, uh, you know, all of, the, um, all of his other fiction, I'll have more to say about this later, is, uh, you know, it's a lot more um, morally stark and accessible, This book is, uh, it's got, it's definitely got a serious dark side and deals with human sacrifice and other such grim issues, but um, it's a lot more morally complex and it's a lot more challenging. And I think that's why, you know, it doesn't um, sell as well as his other fiction, which is a lot more simplistic. And it's the last thing that he wrote before he died, by the way. And what put me onto this, here's where the discussion actually does have to do with contemporary political reality somewhat And the state of the um, publishing industry today and retail book sales, I'm always trying to get friends to read this book. So I'll have more people to talk about it with. So, um, and very few of my friends have in fact read it. Even my friends who are into fantastic fiction haven't read it. I was going to buy a copy of this book to give to a friend. And I went up to Barnes & Noble and I went to the fantastic fiction area, you know, fantastic literature area. And his other works were there, the Space Trilogy, I guess Vanarnia books were in the children's area, whatever, you know, and J.R.R. Tolkien was there, and all the stuff that you would expect was in the fantastic literature area, but not Till We Have Faces. So I'm like, yo, what's up? Don't they have this book? Is it out of print? What's going on? So I um, asked one of the clerks, and I was directed to a section called Christian Living, which is completely inappropriate, for reasons upon which I will expound later on in this podcast. Utterly inappropriate. This book has actually very, very little to do with Christianity. The book is set, for starters, hundreds of years before Christ. So nothing Christian even makes a cameo in this book. And uh, again, you know, the uh, the moral univer- universe of this book is a lot more complicated than what you would expect from a a book which is filed under Christian Living. And certainly, it is not, you know, merely some work of, um, you know, uh, religious inspirational kind of um, reading, which I certainly wouldn't bother with. It's a real serious novel. So, um, classified absolutely incorrectly. And whoever made the decision to put it in the Christian Living section, obviously, didn't read the book. Okay, so that was... uh, my first slightly unpleasant surprise, but it was merely a prelude to a far more unpleasant surprise, which is that I got the uh, the new edition of the book which is very plain, not at all handsome, nobody put any work into it, and ridiculously overpriced, almost I think like seventeen or eighteen dollars for a paperback and but all of that is nothing compared to um, compared to the fact that the three beautiful and evocative in uh, wood engravings by artist Fritz Eichenberg, which had been in every edition of this book since it first came out in 1957, and as far as I'm concerned, are an integral part of the book, are missing from this current edition, which is the only edition which is in print now, apparently. Yeah, the edition from Macmillan, which must have somehow got the rights, because the original edition that I read back in the 1980s, was uh, put out by uh, Harcourt brace Jovanovich. Anyway, so uh, Boo McMillan, very, very bad to uh, remove those um, Fritz Eichenberg engravings. And I'm particularly unhappy about it, not only because I consider them to be an integral part of the work, but because Fritz Eichenberg in himself <coughs> is uh, one of my personal culture heroes, and I want his legacy to be remembered. He was born in uh, Cologne, Germany around the turn of the century, emigrated to the United States to escape the Nazis, settled in New York, became an artist, and uh, he had been born a Jew, which is, which is why it was imperative that he get out of Germany at that time. But uh, in New York, he became a Quaker and became a, uh, a religious pacifist. And uh, in addition to um, teaching art at the New School for Social Research and at the Pratt Institute... He also fell in with the Catholic Worker, the um, activist group right here in my neighborhood on the Lower East Side, founded uh, back in the 1930s by uh, Dorothy Day, which has been, uh, they've got a little, uh, little house over on 3rd Street, just off of 2nd Avenue, where uh, they've been feeding the homeless literally since the Great Depression. And uh, they also still, uh, the, the Catholic Worker still puts out a monthly newspaper, and what I really, really love about it, two things I really love about it. One is that they're still asking a penny for it, just like they did back when, they, back when it was founded in the 1930s. One penny. And secondly, it has no web presence at all. It exists only on hard copy. Now, is that old school or what? And they're still putting it out. And uh, there's quite often, you know, uh, quite a lot worth reading in it about issues of social justice and war and peace. And Fritz Eichenberg, until his death in 1990, was its star illustrator. So uh, even beyond knowing his work from those three beautiful engravings Until We Have Faces, I've known his work for years um, through The Catholic Worker and his uh, engravings of scenes such as The Peaceable Kingdom and, you know, that kind of thing. Good stuff. Good stuff. You know, I mean, uh, personally, I'm an atheist, but those are the kind of um, religious people who I can respect, who actually, you know, walk the walk, put their asses on the line opposing militarism and sharing the burdens of the poor. Egg on the face of Macmillan for putting out a uh, an extremely drab and overpriced edition of Till We Have Faces that does not even include the Fritz Eichenberg engravings. And uh, egg on the face of Barnes & Noble for um, incorrectly classifying the book. So there, that's there's my, uh, you know, obligatory political rant. <laughs> and I argue that it is political because... Uh, it just has to do with uh, you know our culture being being dumbed down and uh, you know uh, and colonized by big corporations. Okay, okay, okay. Now I hope that those of you who are familiar—probably the big majority of you—who are familiar with C.S. Lewis through the Narnia books—I hope that you haven't already you know just tuned out of this podcast in disgust because yeah. Uh, you know, it was the books which first got me into C.S. Lewis when I was 12, but um, they're kind of annoying today, very cloying, very moralistic, overtly racist. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to say that, but it's obviously true, very much in the way that The Lord of the Rings is overtly racist. Um, and uh, with the Narnia books, entirely too allegorical. I mean, there are three of the seven in the series are very clear. biblical allegory very just straight up you know the lion the witch and the wardrobe is the gospel story and the magician's nephew is genesis and the last battle of course is revelations Mm -hmm. Uh, okay the space trilogy or the um, cosmic trilogy as for now marketing it is adult literature for starters not children's literature um, and, you know, I don't uh, diss all children's literature by any means. There is some children's literature, such as The Hobbit, which can definitely be appreciated on an adult level, but, you know, the Narnia books really can't. But the uh, the Space Trilogy, or Cosmic Trilogy, um, is adult literature. And a big, big, big step up from uh, the Narnia books. Definitely, yeah, I, I can still go back and reread it today and have <laughs> several times across uh, my adult life, and, uh, and appreciate it. You know, but still, and Very, very moralistic. Not allegorical. Well, that's not exactly true. The middle one, Perilandra, kind of is uh, another reworking of Genesis, to tell you the truth. But um, anyway, very, very, very moralistic. Stark, black and white, unsubtle Christian moralism. So then we get to Till We Have Faces, which is the last book that he wrote before he died. And um, it's not explicitly Christian the way the others are. As I say, it's set in the ancient world centuries before christ and it's extremely morally serious but it's not moralistic and in fact i would say that (laughs) by not being you know preachingly condescendingly moralistic it's actually being more morally serious than his other works it's complex and it's multi-layered and it's really head and shoulders above everything else that he wrote fiction wise anyway and uh, unfortunately it's um very timely at the moment, in part, even though, you know, it's a timeless story set in the ancient world, because it concerns, in part, a plague. So some of you might find it cathartic reading at this moment. And it is a uh, <clears throat> a reworking of a Greek myth, which was actually first written down by a, a Roman, a late Roman writer by the name of Apuleius. The myth of... Um, Cupid and Psyche, or, as the Greeks would have had it, Eros and Psyche. The uh, subtitle is A Myth Retold, Till Faces, A Myth Retold by C.S. Lewis. And at the end, just to, um, just to give you the necessary background for the discussion here, I'm going to just briefly go through the, uh, the myth of Cupid and Psyche, as told briefly in um, Lewis's own words in a, uh, a note that he includes at the end of the book about his source material. The story of Cupid and Psyche first occurs in one of the few surviving Latin novels, The Metamorphosis, sometimes called The Golden Ass, of Lucius Apulius Platonicus, who was born around 125 AD. And I'll have more to say, interjecting here, about Apulius later, who was actually, although Lewis doesn't mention it, probably a Berber from North Africa, even though he was writing in Latin. All right, to return to... Um, To return to Lewis's note. The relevant parts are as follows. A king and queen had three daughters, of whom the youngest was so beautiful that men worshipped her as a goddess and neglected the worship of Venus for her sake. One result was that Psyche, as the youngest was called, had no suitors. Men reverenced her supposed deity too much to aspire to her hand. When her father consulted the Oracle of Apollo, about her marriage, he received this answer. Hope for no human son-in-law. You must expose Psyche on a mountain to be the prey of a dragon. This he obediently did. But Venus, jealous of Psyche's beauty, had already devised a different punishment for her. She had ordered her son Cupid to afflict the girl with an irresistible passion for the basest of men. Cupid set off to do so, but on seeing Psyche, fell in love with her himself. As soon as she was left on the mountain, he therefore had her carried off by the west wind, Zephyrus, to a secret place where he had prepared a stately palace. Here he visited her by night and enjoyed her love, but he forbade her to see his face. Presently she begged that she might receive a visit from her two sisters. The god reluctantly consented and wafted them to her palace. Here they were royally feasted, and expressed great delight at all the splendors they saw. But inwardly, they were devoured with envy, for their husbands were not gods, and their homes not so fine as hers. They therefore plotted to destroy her happiness. At their next visit, they persuaded her that her mysterious husband must really be a monstrous serpent. You must take into your bedroom tonight, they said, a lamp covered with a cloak and a sharp knife. When he sleeps, uncover the lamp See the horror that is lying in your bed and stab it to death. All this for gullible Psyche promised to do. When she uncovered the lamp, she saw the sleeping god and gazed on him with insatiable love, till a drop of hot oil from her lamp fell on his shoulder and woke him. Starting up, he spread his shining wings, rebuked her, and vanished from her sight. The two sisters did not long enjoy their malice, for Cupid took such measures as led to both of their deaths. Psyche, meanwhile, wandered away wretched and desolate and attempted to drown herself in the first river she came to. But the god Pan frustrated her attempt and warned her never to repeat it. After many miseries, she fell into the hands of her bitterest enemy, Venus, who seized her for a slave, beat her, and set her what were meant to be impossible tasks. The first, that of sorting out seeds into separate heaps, she did by the help of some friendly ants. Next, she had to get a hank of golden wool from some man-killing sheep. A reed by a riverbank whispered to her that this could be achieved by plucking the wool off the bushes. After that, she had to fetch a cupful of water from the Styx, the River of the Dead, which could be reached only by climbing certain impracticable mountains. But an eagle met her, took the cup from her hand, and returned with it full of the water. Finally, she was sent down to the Lower World to bring back to Venus in a box the beauty of Persephone, the queen of the dead. A mysterious voice told her how she could reach Persephone and yet return to our world. And when Persephone gave her the box full of beauty, she must on no account open the lid to look inside. Psyche obeyed all this and returned to the upper world with the box. But then at last, curiosity overcame her, and she looked into it. She immediately lost consciousness. Cupid now came to her again, but this time he forgave her. He interceded with Jupiter, who agreed to permit the marriage and make Psyche a goddess. Venus was reconciled, and they all lived happily ever after. And then Lewis writes that um, in his own reworking of the tale, I felt quite free to go behind the Apuleius, whom I supposed to have been its transmitter, not its inventor. Nothing was further from my mind than to recapture the peculiar quality of the metamorphosis that strange compound of picaresque novel, horror comic, mystagogues tract, pornography, and stylistic experiment. Apulius was, of course, a man of genius, but in relation to my work, he is a source, not an influence, nor a model. Okay, and there's uh, very significant ways in which Lewis departs from Apulius in his retelling of the story, and the first, most obviously, is tone. I mean, Apulius is kind of playing it for laughs. Uh, you know, like it's, it's, it's kind of, a, as Lewis writes, kind of a picaresque, you know, almost pornographic <laughs> at times uh, <clears throat> tone that he's striking. And, um, for instance, when, um, when Psyche is left enchained on the mountaintop, you know, uh, in Apulius, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's kind of like it's Randy. who sweet young thing is um, all chained up and helpless on the mountaintop. Uh, whereas uh, for Lewis, it's really portrayed with horror. And the whole tone in Lewis is much more grave than in Apuleius. Okay, the, um, the time period has changed. Uh, Apuleius, again, he was writing in the late Roman period, but then he uses the Roman name for the gods and goddesses, Venus rather than Aphrodite, Cupid rather than Eros. But he makes clear that the story is um, set in ancient Greek times. And he claims, uh, contemporary historians doubt it, but he claims that he is a, uh, the book is in the first person. And he claims that he is actually a descendant of the ancient Greeks. So by, um, and you know, and the story came down to him that way. And by strong implication, it's set on a kingdom on a Greek island and presumably back in the um, heroic age. Whereas Lewis clearly places it in the, uh, the Hellenistic period, about a thousand years after the heroic age. And he also changes the setting to, um... A barbarian kingdom somewhere way up in the mountains on the very um, fringe of the of the known world of the Greeks. He's not really explicit about where, but uh, he drops enough hints that if you read it very, very carefully, and okay, here are some spoiler alerts, shall we say. I should have said that earlier. <laughs> but if you read it very, very carefully, uh, you can glean that it's probably a Scythian kingdom, Uh, in the Caucasus Mountains. And they're aware of the Greeks and they're kind of intimidated by them at the same time that they look up to them and they they kind of resent them and they're intimidated by them at the same time that they emulate them, which is very plausible as to what, you know, the relationship of Scythian kingdoms might have been to, uh, you know, Greek civilization at that time, presumably post-Alexandrian period. The role of Venus in the story is played by Unjit, who is the Chthonic Earth Mother Goddess of this kingdom, uh, Lewis's creation, but then again plausible and certainly Lewis had you know read Fraser's Golden Bough and was certainly you know immersed in the uh, spiritual traditions of that period of history. The only one character, very favorable character, and a creation of Lewis, not in the Apuleius, who actually has a connection to uh, to the Greeks, is a character called the Fox who was actually a court slave. He had been taken in war far away, presumably fighting the Persians or fighting as a mercenary for the Persians, possibly one of the 10,000 of Xenophon, if you know that story. And he was uh, sold into slavery and eventually wound up uh, in Lewis's fictional kingdom way up in the mountains and kind of became a, uh, even though he was, you know, abused and humiliated by the tyrant king. Uh, he kind of became an influential figure because he was the smartest guy in town. He could, you know, he was the only guy who could read and, he, you know, he could speak Greek and, uh, you know, and he was a, a real scholar. And uh, he kind of became a, um, the power behind the throne to a certain extent, as was, uh, you know, frequently the case in the ancient world where slave mercenaries or advisors would really become the power behind the throne. And he also became the mentor figure for the main character. And now we get to the main character, which is the other significant difference between um, Apuleius and Lewis. In Lewis's version, Psyche is not the main character. It's one of the evil sisters who's the main character. It's all seen through her eyes. And she's actually not evil, but she has uh, much more complicated motives. She genuinely loves Psyche, cares for her very much. She's not malevolent. Her name is Oriwal, and her deep love for her sister Psyche, younger sister Psyche, is uh, despite the fact that while Psyche is preternaturally beautiful, she herself, Oriwal, the main character, is physically ugly and can never hope to marry. And as portrayed in the book, she doesn't quite understand her own motives in um, pressuring Psyche to disobey Cupid and thereby bringing ruin down on her. Again, more about that later. And finally, Lewis embellishes the story a great deal, adding, for instance, the uh, kingdom being beset by a plague and a famine, which is why the priest of Unjit demanded that Psyche be sacrificed to purify the kingdom, with the idea being that Unjit or Venus had sent the plague as punishment because she was jealous of Psyche. So this book works on um, at least three levels. First, as a reworking of the myth. Because despite the fact that, you know, it reads more like a modern novel than an ancient myth, the power of the myth still comes through. Secondly, as uh, historical fiction, even apart from the fantastical element, it's a uh, pretty plausible picture of what life might have been like for a barbarian kingdom in the uh, Caucasus Mountains in the Hellenistic Age. And uh, finally, on the deepest level... I'll be so ambitious as to say that it's a novel that contains truths, that explores the mystery of the self, and uh, that reading it with the respect and the seriousness that it demands is an experience that can actually change you. So, I mean, when I say it's a novel that contains truths, I don't mean factual truths. I mean deeper truths. Okay, it's kind of divided into um, two sections. It begins as Oriol's Complaint Against the Gods, writing as she approaches her death as an old woman. Complaint Against the Gods for um, taking Psyche away from her and uh, for generally jacking her around all of her life and inflicting suffering on her. Then in part two, really uh, written while Oriol is approaching death, she has a, a series of visions in which the gods finally appeared to her, and she gets a chance to read her complaint before Radamanthus, the judge of the dead in the underworld. But when she rolls out her scroll to read her complaint, the words that come out of her mouth, or what she finds written there, is actually very, very different from what she actually wrote. And what actually comes out of her mouth causes her to realize that her love from Psyche was clinging and possessive and devouring and that she had hurt and exploited everyone who she had most loved in life. All right, so I'm going to uh, just read three passages, one from the beginning, one from the middle, and one from the end, which sort of sum up all's spiritual journey. First, the opening couple of pages. I am old now, and have not much to fear from the anger of the gods. I have no husband, nor child, nor hardly a friend through whom they can hurt me. My body, this lean carry-on that still needs to be washed and fed and have clothes hung about it daily with so many changes, they may kill as soon as they please. The succession is provided for. My crown passes to my nephew. Being, for these reasons, free from fear, I will write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the god who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning, as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. But there is no judge between gods and men, and the god of the mountain will not answer me. Terrors and plagues are not an answer. I write in Greek as my old master taught it to me. It may some day happen that a traveler from the Greek lands will again lodge in this palace and read the book. Then he will talk of it among the Greeks, Where there is great freedom of speech, even about the gods themselves, perhaps their wise men will know whether my complaint is right or whether the god could have defended himself if he had made an answer. I was Orual, the eldest daughter of Trom, king of Glom. The city of Glom stands on the left hand of the river Shenet. From a traveller who is coming up from the southeast, the city is built about as far back from the river as a woman can walk in the third of an hour. For the Shenet overflows her banks in the spring. In summer. There was then dry mud on each side of it, and reeds, and plenty of waterfowl. About as far beyond the ford of the Shenet, as our city is on our side of it, you come to the holy house of Unjit. And beyond the house of Unjit, going all the time east and north, you come quickly to the foothills of the Grey Mountain. The god of the Grey Mountain, who hates me, is the son of Unjit. He does not, however, live in the house of Unjit, but Unjit sits there alone. In the furthest recesses of her house, where she sits, it is so dark that you cannot see her well, but in summer, enough light may come down from the smoke holes in the roof to show her a little. She is a black stone without head or hands or face and a very strong goddess. My old master, whom we called the Fox, said that she was the same whom the Greeks call Aphrodite, but I write all the names of people and places in our own language. All right, then I'm going to jump ahead to the middle of the book shortly after, um, Psyche has been sacrificed, as they thought. In fact, she was wedded with the god, but they thought she was going to be sacrificed and left to be devoured by a serpent or just die of exposure. And sure enough, after she was sacrificed, the plague went away and the rains came and the drought ended. So it confirmed everybody's belief that she needed to be sacrificed. And uh, Oruel fell ill, not with the plague, but basically with grief for many weeks and finally when she gets her strength back she decides to go up the mountain and find and bury the remains of psyche of course what she actually encounters turns out to be very different and that's when the first truly fantastical elements of the of the novel appear but I'm not going to I'm not going to read that I'm going to talk about a little interval she has on her way up the mountain she's going up the mountain on horseback with her guide who's another main character in the book an invention of C.S. Lewis who I'm not going to touch on and this passage in addition to being, you know, some really great purple prose, really sums up Oriel's bitterness and anger and her deep suspicion and, in fact, rejection of happiness. We went now for a long time over grass, gently but steadily upward, making for a ridge so high and so near that the true mountain was quite out of sight. When we topped it and stood for a while to let the horse breathe, everything was changed, and my struggle began. We had come into the sunlight now, too bright to look into, and warm, I threw back my cloak. Heavy dew made the grass jewel bright, the mountain far greater, yet also far further off than I had expected. Seen with the sun hanging a hand's breadth above its topmost crags, did not look like a solid thing. Between us and it was a vast tumble of valley and hill, woods and cliffs, and more little lakes than I could count to left and right and behind us, the whole colored world with all its hills was heaped up and up to the sky, with far away a gleam of what we call the sea, although it is not to be compared with the great sea of the Greeks. And here I should add that, of course, the great sea of the Greeks was the Mediterranean. So the sea that she's looking at is probably the Black Sea or perhaps even the Aral Sea. There was a lark singing, but for that huge and ancient stillness. And my struggle was this. You may well believe that I had set out sad enough. I came on a sad errand. But now, flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as if it were a voice, no words. But if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? It's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? I had to tell myself over like a lesson the infinite reasons it had not to dance. My heart to dance? Mine, whose love was taken from me, I, the ugly princess, who must never look for other love, the drudge of the king, perhaps to be murdered or turned out as a beggar when my father died, for who knew what Gloam would do then? And yet it was a lesson I could hardly keep in my mind. The sight of the huge world put mad ideas into me, as if I could wander away, wander forever, see strange and beautiful things, one after the other, to the world's end." The freshness and wetness all about me, I had seen nothing but drought and withered things for many months before my sickness, it made me feel that I had misjudged the world. It seemed kind and laughing, as if its heart also danced. Even my ugliness I could not quite believe in. Who can feel ugly when the heart meets the light? It is as if somewhere inside, within the hideous face and bony limbs, one is soft, fresh, lissome, and desirable. We had stood on the ridge only for a short time, but for hours later, while we went up and down, winding among great hills, often dismounting and leading the horse, sometimes on dangerous edges, my struggle went on. Was I not right to struggle against this fool-happy mood? Mere seemliness, if nothing else, called for it. I would not go laughing to Psyche's burial. If I did, How should I ever again believe that I had loved her? Reason called for it. I knew the world too well to believe this sudden smiling. What woman can have patience with the man who can be yet again deceived by his doxy's fawning, after he has thrice proved her false? I should be just like such a man, if a mere burst of fair weather, and fresh grass after a long drought, and health after sickness could make me friends again with this god-haunted, plague-breeding, decaying, tyrannous world. I had seen. I was not a fool. I did not know then, however, as I do now, the strongest reason for distrust. The gods never send us this invitation to delight, so readily or so strongly, as when they are preparing some new agony, we are their bubbles. They blow us big before they prick us. But I held my own without that knowledge. I ruled myself. Did they think I was nothing but a pipe to be played on as their moments fancied chose? But now I'm going to cut to the very end of the book, final pages, and read just a very brief passage after she has read her complaint to the gods, and it comes out completely different than what she had actually written and what she had actually expected would come out of her mouth. And she has her great moment of self-revealing. And she writes, after all of her pride at having articulated her complaint against the gods, she writes... When the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I knew well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face? Till we have faces, roll credits. Okay, and it's in these final pages of the book where finally it begins to approach something which could remotely be considered Christian morality, where the gods are actually the gods show their true faces and they're actually revealed to be beautiful and superior, and not you know the uh, jealous, conniving beings of uh, the pagan world. But it's this inkling of New Testament morality. Which is put in terms that could have been understood by an inhabitant of a pagan kingdom centuries before Christ. And Lewis was of the opinion, in common, although I don't believe he ever referenced him, with Bartolome de las Casas, the bishop in New Spain who protested to the Spanish crown the enslavement and abuse and genocide of the uh, native population of Mexico and Central America. The belief that, you know, God was already working with pagan and pre-Christian peoples before their contact with Christianity, and there is actually, you know, spiritual truths and legitimacy in their own, you know, so-called pre-Christian traditions, and it's because Lewis believed this and wrote about it at length, both in his fiction and expository works, even though, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble classifies his works in, you know, Christian living, the real serious hardcore fundamentalists hate Lewis. For exactly this reason. So finally, at the very end, something which begins to approach Christian morality in the final pages, in a very, very cloaked form, begins to emerge in the book, but without any allegory, expressing truths which are too complicated to be boiled down to allegory. And here is where I would argue that Lewis is actually taking the truths which were in the myth of Cupid and Psyche in his source material and enriching them with his own insights and elaborations, which is why the book works both as a myth and as a, as a modern novel. Now, I'm going to uh, do another little reading here from a different work by C.S. Lewis entitled An Experiment in Criticism, also written late in life, Cambridge University Press, 1961, the year he died. So Till We Have Faces was his last work of fiction that he completed, but not his last work. And in this work, he, uh, you know, tries to challenge what he feels were some of the intellectual errors of the literary critics of his day. At the beginning, he uh, defines the word myth as he uses it and lists a few essential characteristics for a myth. So uh, let's go through this list and see if they actually apply to his own work till we have faces. One, it is extra literary. Those who have got the same myth. Through Hawthorne or Robert Graves or Roger Green, have a mythical experience in common. So, yeah, I would say that, as you know, as again, as stylistically different as Lewis and Apuleius are in their um, tellings of the same story, the myth comes through in both with all of its inherent power. Two, the pleasure of myth depends hardly at all on such usual narrative attractions as suspense or surprise. Even at first hearing, it is felt to be inevitable. And the first hearing is chiefly valuable in introducing us to a permanent object of contemplation, more like a thing than a narration, which works upon us by its peculiar flavor or quality, rather as a smell or a chord does. Sometimes, even from the first, there is hardly any narrative element. The idea that the gods and all good men live under the shadow of Ragnarok is hardly a story. The Hesperides, with their apple tree and dragon, are already a potent myth, without bringing in Heracles to steal the apples. Three, human sympathy is at a minimum. We do not project ourselves at all strongly into the characters. They are like shapes moving in another world. We feel indeed that the pattern of their movements has a profound relevance to our own life, but we do not imaginatively transport ourselves into theirs. The story of Orpheus, makes us sad, but we are sorry for all men, rather than vividly sympathetic with him. Okay, and uh, in these last two, this is where his book departs from myth, and it's actually a modern novel, because the typical narrative devices such as suspense are played for all they're worth. (laughs) And um, certainly, Oriol is a character that uh, I think that you can relate with intensely, you can intensely identify with her and actually feel that you're in her shoes. She isn't just a shadow moving through another world, although Psyche is, after her sacrifice, when she is wedded with the god, she does sort of become a um, you know a shadow moving through another world. And oruel's uh, only further interactions with her are uh, in those visions that she has at the end of the book. Four. Myth is always, in one sense of that word, fantastic. It deals with impossibilities and preternaturals. Well, yes, obviously this book does. I'll also add that it does so sparingly. I mean, it isn't like most, you know, fantasy fiction where this constantly fights with dragons and whatnot. No, very, very, very sparing elements of the, of the supernatural enter into the book. They're essential to the plot, but they don't actually take up uh, a lot of the, act- of the book's pages. It's like the use of a strong spice when cooking. A little bit goes a long way. Part of what gives the book its power. And you can almost wonder if Oriol did not just imagine all of her um, dealings with the supernatural and the gods, although I'm pretty sure that they were supposed to be real. (laughs) Okay, five. The experience may be sad or joyful, but it is always grave. Comic myth is impossible. And, well, again, like I say, uh, Apuleius actually was kind of playing it for laughs in his telling of the tale of Cupid and Psyche and the Golden Ass. But even so, even in the Apuleius version, there was something of uh, the grave and the numinous which Lewis seized upon. And finally, six, the experience is not only grave, but awe-inspiring. We feel it to be numinous. Which means, according to the online dictionary, having a strong religious or spiritual quality, indicating or suggesting the presence of divinity, it is as if something of great moment had been communicated to us. The persistent efforts of the mind to grasp, we mean chiefly to conceptualize, this something, are seen in the persistent tendency of humanity to provide myths with allegorical explanations. And after all the allegories have been tried, the myth itself continues to feel more important than they. And this really speaks to my own experience with this book, because when I first read this book, when I first read Till We Have Faces, when I was in my 20s, and I was trying to figure out why it struck such a deep chord in me, and I experimented with all of these theories of allegorical meaning, some of which are, you know, kind of obvious, because eros is a word in English. Psyche is also a word in English. And in the Apuleius version... After they are wedded at the end and reconciled, they give birth to a child named Pleasure. So, gee, great. So, when uh, erotic love is wedded with the soul, you get Pleasure. Well, that's pretty fucking obvious, isn't it? (laughs) And also, pretty insufficient. And if the meaning was so clear that you could just flatly state it like that, then you wouldn't need the story which contains deeper levels of meaning which defy such flat explanations, which is precisely why this book is head and shoulders above all the other fiction that Lewis wrote. And interestingly enough, this is actually a point that Lewis touches on in the novel, Until We Have Faces, about the limits of allegory and the difference between allegory and myth. So I'm going to read another passage from the book where Oriwal, now uh, during her long reign as the Queen of Glom, <clears throat> finds it to be an odious duty to go to the, uh, the Temple of Unjin for her religious responsibilities, one of which is an annual festival called the Year's Birth, which seems to be set around the time of the Spring Equinox, which is celebrated in the morning after a long all-night vigil in the temple. And uh, during this, she has a, um, an exchange with Arnim, who is the new priest not the old priest who ordered Psyche to be sacrificed, but his successor who took over after his death, who is, you know, lightening up a little bit and, you know, chilling out with the human sacrifice <laughs> and getting enlightened and um, associating Unjit with Aphrodite and uh, generally Hellenizing the cult. But as we can see, it's still very much a, uh, a Chthonic cult and Unjit still demands sacrifice if no longer human ones. And uh, she still has uh, temple prostitutes, and it's all very dark and grim. When there is a king in Gloom, he has to go in with the priest at sunset and remain in the house of Unjit till the birth. But it is unlawful for a virgin to be present at the things which are done in the house at night. So I go in by the north door only an hour before the birth. The others who have to be there are one of the nobles and one of the elders and one of the people chosen in a sacred manner, which I am not allowed to write. That year it was a fresh morning, very sweet, with a light wind from the south. And because of that freshness out of doors, I felt more than ever that it was a horrible thing to have to go into the dark holiness of Unjit's house. I have, I think, said before that Arnhem had made it a little lighter and cleaner, but it was still an imprisoning, smothering sort of place. And especially on the morning of the birth, When there had been sensing and slaughtering and pouring of wine and pouring of blood and dancing and feasting and towsing of girls and burning of fat all night long, there was as much taint of sweat and foul air as in a mortal's house would have set the laziest slut to opening windows, scouring and sweeping. I came and sat on the flat stone, which is my place, opposite the sacred stone, which is Undred herself. Arnhem's seat was on my right. He was in his mask, of course, nodding with weariness. During a ritual officiation, the priest has to put on a a mask in the shape of a bird's head, impersonating one of their gods. They were beating the drums, but not loud. Otherwise, there was silence. I saw the terrible girls sitting in rows down both sides of the house, each cross-legged at the door of her cell. Thus they sat year after year till they turned into the toothless crones who were hobbling about the floor, tending fires and sweeping. Sometimes, after a swift glance round, swooping as suddenly as a bird to pick up a coin or a half-gnawed bone and hide it in their gowns. And I thought how the seed of men that might have gone to make hardy boys and fruitful girls was drained into that house and nothing given back. And how the silver that men had earned hard and needed was also drained there and nothing given back, and how the girls themselves were devoured and were given nothing back. Then I looked at Unjit herself. She had not, like most sacred stones, fallen from the sky. The story was that at the very beginning, she had pushed her way up out of the earth, a foretaste of, or ambassador from, whatever things may live and work down there, one below the other, all the way down under the dark and weight and heat. I have said she had no face, but that meant she had a thousand faces for she was very uneven, lumpy, and furrowed, so that, as when we gaze into a fire, you could always see some face or another. She was now more rugged than ever because of all the blood that had been poured over her in the night, in the little clots and chains of it. I made out a face, a fancy at one moment, but then, once you had seen it, not to be evaded. A face such as you might see in a loaf, swollen, brooding, infinitely female. "Arnum," said I, whispering, who is Unjit? "'I think, Queen,' said he, his voice strange out of the mask, "'she signifies the earth, which is the womb and mother of all living things. "'This was the new way of talking about the gods which Arnhem and others had learned from the fox. "'If she is the mother of all things,' said I, "'in what way more is she the mother of the god of the mountain? "'He is the air and the sky.' for we see the clouds coming up from the earth in mists and exhalations, then why do the stories sometimes say she's her husband too? That means the sky by its showers makes the earth fruitful. If that's all they mean, why do they wrap it up in so strange a fashion? Doubtless, said Arnim, and I could tell that he was yawning inside the mask, being worn out with his vigil, doubtless to hide it from the vulgar. I would torment him no more, but I said to myself, It's very strange that our fathers should first think it worth telling us that rain falls out of the sky, and then, for fear such a notable secret should get out, why not hold their tongues, wrap it up in a filthy tale so that no one could understand the telling? (laughs) Perfect, perfect. And, uh, you know, I consider this to be, uh, whether he intended it that way or not, I consider this to actually be an implicit criticism of Lewis's own earlier works, and that very passage just shows how much he had grown as a writer since he wrote all that unpalatable Narnia glop. And you could even argue that this insight has something to do with the hidden inner meaning of the story, where everything is beautiful as long as it is dark and mysterious, but you try to shed a harsh light on it and the magic evaporates, and you are cast out from ecstasy into misery. But here I am drawing an allegory about the limitations of allegory. Okay, and finally, after having read that uh, extremely unflattering depiction of the Mother Goddess, the last thing which I'm going to discuss is the um, contrasting views of the Goddess in the Apuleius version and the C.S. Lewis version. And uh, this is a real paradox, because, uh, again, despite, you know, taking an almost pornographic pleasure at Psyche's travails, Apuleius was a zealous devotee of the Mother Goddess, as opposed to Lewis being an equally zealous devotee of God the Father, obviously. All right, and here's where we uh, need to say a few things about Apuleius. Apuleius, despite um, claiming to be a descendant of the ancient Greeks and living at the tail end of the Roman era actually lived in the the Roman province of Numidia, which is uh, today uh, contemporary Algeria and Tunisia. And the Numidians are the people who are today known as the Berbers. In their own tongue, the Amazir, or plural, Imaziren, the indigenous people of uh, North Africa, who were there before the Arabs arrived, and fought for Carthage in the Punic Wars. And as we shall see, Apulius was definitely... He probably was a Berber. he might have had some Greek background as well, but he was definitely you know um, very, very strongly influenced by the cultures of the uh, southern part of the Mediterranean world, North Africa, Egypt, and particularly held the uh, the culture of Egypt in great reverence as you know the great source of uh, ultimately of um, of greco-Roman culture, which was very much you know the Greek view of things and you know gets into the whole um, black Athena thesis. So now I'm going to read um, another passage from Lewis from early in the book when the fox is familiarizing Oriol with Greek mythology and Greek culture and then contrast it with a a reading from Apuleius and see how they have uh, vividly distinct views of the goddess. Okay, so this is Oriol remembering her childhood with the fox and hearing a tale of Aphrodite, or the Greek unjit, as it were, for the first time. I loved the fox, as my father called him, better than anyone I had yet known. You would have thought that a man who had been free in the Greek lands, and then been taken in war and sold far away among the barbarians, would be downcast. And so he was sometimes, possibly more than I in my childishness guessed. But I never heard him complain, and I never heard him boast, as all the other foreign slaves did, about the great man he had been in his own country. He had all sorts of sayings to cheer himself up with. No man can be an exile if he remembers that all the world is one city, and everything is as good or bad as our opinion makes it. But I think what really came him cheerful was his inquisitiveness. I never knew such a man for questions. He wanted to know everything about our country and language and ancestors and gods, and even our plants and flowers. That was how I came to tell him all about Unjit, about the girls who are kept in her house and the presents that brides have to make to her and how we sometimes, in a bad year, have to cut someone's throat and pour the blood over her. He shuddered when I said that and muttered something under his breath, but a moment later he said, yes, she is undoubtedly Aphrodite, though more like the Babylonian than the Greek, but come, I'll tell you a tale of our Aphrodite. Then he deepened and lilted his voice and told how their Aphrodite Once fell in love with the prince Anchises, while he kept his father's sheep on the slopes of a mountain called Ida, and as she came down the grassy slopes towards his shepherd's hut, lions and lynxes and bears and all sorts of beasts came about her fawning like dogs, and all went from her again in pairs to the delights of love. But she dimmed her glory and made herself like a mortal woman, and came to Anchises and beguiled him, and they went up together into his bed. I think the fox had meant to stop there, but now the song had him in its grip, and he went on to tell what followed: how Anchises woke from sleep and saw Aphrodite standing in the door of the hut, not now like a mortal, but with the glory. So he knew he had lain with a goddess, and he covered his eyes and shrieked, "Kill me at once!" Not that this ever really happened, the fox said in haste. It's only lies of poets, lies of poets, child. Not in accordance with nature, but he had said enough to let me see that if the goddess was more beautiful in Greece than in Glom, she was equally terrible in each. Okay, now let me give a little bit of uh, context on the golden ass of Lucius Apulius, which is actually told in the first person as if he had actually experienced it. And it's one of these books, like The Arabian Nights, which contains stories within stories... So, the uh, tale of Cupid and Psyche is actually a a story which one of the characters of the Golden Ass tells. It takes up about a third of the book, but it's really kind of extraneous to the main plot. And in the main plot, Lucius falls in love with a uh, rather incompetent witch who gives him the wrong potion. It was a potion that was supposed to give him beautiful, lustrous wings like the god Cupid. And instead, she gives him a potion that turns him into a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, then can't undo the spell. So he is um, cursed to wander through life as a donkey, as a beast of burden, until finally at the end, he comes to the, to the beach at Corinth in Greece, and in utter despair of having to live the rest of his life as a donkey, he cries himself to sleep. And now I'm going to read from the, uh, the Robert Graves translation of The Golden Ass of Apuleius, published in 1952. Not long afterwards... I awoke in sudden terror. A dazzling full moon was rising from the sea. It is at this secret hour that the moon goddess, sole sovereign of mankind, is possessed of her greatest power and majesty. She is the shining deity by whose divine influences not only all beasts, wild and tame, but all inanimate things as well, are invigorated, whose ebbs and flows control the rhythms of all bodies whatsoever, whether in the air, on earth, or below the sea. Of this I was well aware, and therefore resolved, to address the visible image of the goddess, meaning the moon, imploring her help, for fortune seemed at last to have made up her mind that I had suffered enough, and to be offering me hope of release. Jumping up and shaking off my drowsiness, I went down to the sea to purify myself by bathing in it. Seven times I dipped my head under the waves. Seven, according to the divine philosopher Pythagoras, is a number that suits all religious occasions, and with joyful eagerness though tears were running down my hairy face, because remember, he's a donkey, (laughs) I offered this soundless prayer to the Supreme Goddess. Blessed Queen of Heaven, whether you are pleased to be known as Ceres, the original Harvest Mother, who in joy at finding your lost daughter Persephone abolished the rude acorn diet of our forefathers and gave them bread, raised from the fertile soil of Aleutius, because Ceres, of course, is where our word cereal comes from, or whether as Celestial Venus, now adored sea-girt pathos, who at the time of the first creation coupled the sexes in mutual love and so contrived that man should continue to propagate his kind forever, or whether as Artemis, the physician's sister of Phoebus Apollo, reliever of the birth pangs of women, and now adored in the ancient shrine at Ephesus, or whether is dread Persephone, to whom the owl cries at night, whose triple face is a potent against the malice of ghosts, keeping them imprisoned below the earth, you who wander through many sacred groves and are propitiated with many different rites, you whose womanly light illuminates the walls of every city, whose misty radiance nurses the happy seeds under the soil, you who control the wandering course of the sun. And the very power of his rays, I beseech you, by whatever name, in whatever aspect, with whatever ceremonies you deign to be invoked, have mercy of me in my extreme distress. Restore my shattered fortune. Grant me repose and peace after this long sequence of miseries. End my sufferings and perils. Rid me of this hateful, four-footed disguise. Return me to my family. Make me Lucius once again. But if I have offended some god of unappeasable cruelty who was bent on making life miserable for me, at least grant me the one sure gift, the gift of death. When I finished my prayer and poured out the full bitterness of my oppressed heart, I returned to my sandy hollow, where once more sleep overcame me. I had scarcely closed my eyes before the apparition of a woman began to rise from the middle of the sea with so lovely a face that the gods themselves would have fallen down in adoration of it. And then he goes on for several passages describing the beautiful face of the goddess. Let me fast forward a little bit. All the perfumes of Arabia floated into my nostrils as the goddess deigned to address me. You see me here, Lucius, in answer to your prayer. I am nature, the universal mother, mistress of all the elements, primordial child of time, sovereign of all things spiritual, queen of the dead, queen also of the immortals the single manifestation of all gods and goddesses that are. My nod governs the shining heights of heavens, the wholesome sea breezes, the lamentable silences of the world below, though I am worshipped in many aspects, known by countless names, and propitiated with all manner of different rites. Yet the whole round earth venerates me, the primeval Phrygians, call me Pesanuntica, mother of the gods, the Athenians, sprung from their own soil call me artemis for the islanders of cyprus i am Paphian aphrodite for the archers of crete i am dictina for the trilingual sicilians because at that point in history the sicilians spoke greek latin and phoenician i am stygian persephone and for the eleusinians their ancient mother of the corn some know me as juno some as bologna of the battles others as hecate others as Ramnubia, but both races of Ethiopians, whose lands the morning sun first shines upon, and the Egyptians, who excel in ancient learning and worship me with ceremonies proper to my Godhead, call me by my true name, namely Queen Isis. I have come in pity of your plight. I have come to favor and aid you. Weep no more. Lament no longer. The hour of deliverance, shown over by my watchful light, is at hand. And then the goddess goes on to inform poor Apuleius in the form of a of a donkey that a ship is about to arrive on the beach from across the sea in Egypt, filled with um, Egyptian priests and priestesses who have come to pay homage to the goddess. And he sits and he waits for them on the beach, and they arrive and they come off of their ship in a procession, a dangle with you know um, all sorts of regalia and Egyptian hieroglyphics and whatnot. And finally, after performing all of their um, rituals honoring Isis, they leave a bouquet of roses in her honor, and then get back into the ship and go across the sea to Egypt. And after they've left, Apuleius approaches where the ritual took place, and uh, being a donkey, he eats the roses. (laughs) And immediately upon consuming the roses, he is um, transformed back into Apuleius once again. And takes his normal form and lives happily ever after. Roll credits. Okay. And this uh, this point in this question concern, Lewis's and Apuleius's attitude towards the female gender. All right. So it's something of a contradiction, as I say, that um, Apuleius, you know, has this great worshipful reverence for the mother goddess. Yet, with the exception of the goddess in her brief cameo at the end. His female characters are basically there for, um, you know, quasi-pornographic titillation. (laughs) Certainly, there's an element of that in his portrayal of Psyche. Whereas Lewis, being a devotee of God the Father, of course, takes a much dimmer view of the Mother Goddess. Yet I would, you know, argue that his treatment of women until we have Faces is a lot more serious and respectful. Well, the whole book is more serious. But the last thing I'm going to have to say, which gets to um, the question which I am going to pose to you, the listener, and hopefully the reader. Hopefully I've inspired some of you to actually read this book and maybe dive into some of his source material, The Golden Ass of Apuleius. And probably some of you have already read it, which is why you're listening to this podcast. I'm going to leave you with a question and encourage you to get back to me with your thoughts. Which is, till we have faces, ultimately feminist, even if Lewis never would have used that word to describe himself. And here we, uh, well, first we can, uh, you know, contrast a lot of his earlier work, which is definitely anti feminist. Probably my second favorite piece of fiction that he wrote was the final book in the space trilogy, That Hideous Strength, which also has a female uh, lead character. And it's definitely quite consciously, anti-feminist. <laughs> it's really kind of irritating that way. But something in him had changed in the years between uh, when he wrote that book and when he wrote Till We Have Faces. I think it's pretty clear. And you really can't talk about Till We have Faces without talking about Joy Davidman, to whom the book is dedicated. And some people think that maybe, really, Joy Davidman should have been a co-author, because Lewis definitely could not have written it without her. And her influence is very, very much stamped all over it. And Joy Davidman, okay, Lewis had been a a bachelor all his life until he married very late in life, just before he started undertaking the writing of Till We Have Faces. Ironically, (laughs) given that he was a conservative Christian moralist, to a a younger left-wing Jewish woman from New York City, Joy Davidman. There's a really excellent movie which was made about their romance, maybe about 20 years ago, called Shadowlands. The story ends very tragically because uh, shortly after they uh, got married, she uh, was unexpectedly stricken with cancer and died. And Lewis's whole um, grappling with this experience was in uh, one of his final works, A Grief Observed, which I've never actually read because I'm sure it's really, really, really depressing. And by all accounts, Lewis relied very, very heavily on the help of Joy Davidman in crafting the character of Oriol. And actually, for the first time, not only, you know, the the most powerful character that he ever portrayed in his fiction, as far as I'm concerned, but his uh, first woman character that ever actually really had much substance to her. And so the protagonist in this book is a woman who, in addition to being a really complex character, is, despite her emotional wounds and self-loathing, Ultimately, a very favorable character. While the main antagonists in the book are both patriarchs, the old priest, the water psyche to be sacrificed, and Orwell's father, the king, who physically and emotionally abuses her, and who basically, you know, ran the kingdom into the ground through his um, selfishness and backwardness. And Orwell, on taking power after he dies sets the kingdom right and brings about peace and prosperity and social development and literacy and, uh, you know, um, uh, promotes Greek culture and even takes steps to begin to phase out slavery and basically modernizes things, social improvement. And not only is she a queen, a wise and benevolent and just queen, but she's also a warrior queen who defends her kingdom on the battlefield and leads her armies into war. And Oriwell, who had been, you know, beaten down all of her life as an ugly woman in a culture where women are only good for one thing, you know, overcomes all of this, succeeds in taking control of the kingdom upon her father's death when everything was falling apart, and uh, you know, breaking every social norm of her day, learns how to use a sword and ride a horse and become a warrior as well as a queen. Something which utterly, utterly would have chagrined her backward-thinking, reactionary father. So this is my question to all of you. Is this work, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, A Myth Retold, despite its unflattering depiction of the goddess as a jealous and terrible being, ultimately feminist? Now, a countervailing argument, as my technical producer Chris Rywalt, who also read the book, pointed out to me, is that Oriwal is only able to achieve all of this because she is ugly. And basically suppresses her womanhood. And a very critical point is that upon becoming queen, she takes the veil and hides her face for the rest of her life. Which um, definitely symbolically relates to the story's theme of how we hide our true selves both from the world and ultimately from ourselves. But maybe that was the only way a woman could become a warrior queen. In the deeply patriarchal, if is worshiping culture described in the book. So I leave it to you, dear listener, to give me your opinion. Can Tilbury have faces be considered feminist? Be in touch and let me know what you think. Read this book if you haven't. Uh, my message to you, Barnes and Noble, is please classify this book correctly. Take it out of the Christian Living section and put it in the fantasy fiction section. And uh, my final message to you, the publisher. Macmillan, is I thoroughly expect that in your next printing of this book, you are going to include The Woodcuts by Fritz Eichenberg. And if you don't, you're going to be hearing from me. Don't you worry. This has been The Counter Vortex with your rantor Bill Weinberg. Check us out online, where I blog every day about matters usually completely unrelated to fiction and literature, <laughs> but have to do with world politics, at countervortex.org. Join the counter vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. Okay, we're done.